This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 120, Residential Bombings. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week, we're talking about the period just before Atlanta's white flight. Three decades of incessant terror, violence, and destruction against the Black families that purchased or rented homes in what were considered quote-unquote white neighborhoods. It's dark and depressing, so if this is not the mood you're going for today, you're welcome to skip this episode. But if you haven't lived through this, if your family hasn't lived through this, if you don't know these stories, I highly encourage you to listen. We often talk about history and bullet points, and because of this, things are left out. When I learned about Jim Crow in school, the violence was downplayed or ignored. Of course, we have the famous videos, like John Lewis on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, but if it's not on video, we weren't talking about it. I learned about separate but equal, that Black people had to use different bathrooms, go to different schools, different buses, all that stuff. But what I didn't know was the violence, the stuff that white America has a much harder time talking about. This research helped me understand why Dr. King's message of nonviolence was so revolutionary for the time, because for decades, Black people around the country were dealing with these same stories that Atlanta has to share. So I will keep my preamble short. I do want to point out a few things. None of this is ancient history. Also, there were so many of these local bombings, this episode could have been an hour long. So I'm going to talk about them quickly um, in sort of a succinct fashion. And so I just want you to know that there wasn't always much information. I just wanted to get as many in here so you can understand the gravity of the situation. And a last shout out to the Black press. So about a quarter of these incidents were covered in white newspaper, but the majority and definitely the earliest I would not know about if it were not for the Daily World. The first reference of a home being bombed dates to 1932. Jones Avenue is today one block up from Joseph E. Lowry Boulevard, which was formerly Ashby Street. In July of that year, racial tensions boiled over when Forrest Stribling found four sticks of dynamite, a cap, and a fuse planted in his front yard. There was also a recent arrest of two white boys from the neighborhood charged with throwing rocks at a Mrs. Hattie Mason and was later dismissed by the judge in court. There was a Mrs. G. Shader who lived at the Weinkoff Hotel, but she owned a row of houses on Jones Avenue. She rented one of them to Gus Beasley, a black man who she also paid to look after her other properties. Now, she had several broken windows in each of these homes broken out, and Mrs. Shader says that it was the neighbors doing this to frighten black homebuyers. She had gotten several warnings before for renting her homes to black families. But the neighbors got together and said that it was Beasley that did it, that he dynamited his own home. And several witnesses, including a minister, testified against him. The police officers did arrest Beasley. They say it was to protect him from the white mob that quickly formed post-explosion. So this was a very big deal locally. This case was, everybody was talking about it in the newspapers, but the trial never materialized. Two weeks after the Jones Avenue incident, the home of Pauline Thomas at 109 Vine Street, which was very close by, was exploded with dynamite. It blew a huge hole in the floor of her front porch, as well as cracked several front windows. Thomas stated that she had not received any threats or warnings, but recently four white children had been arrested for throwing rocks at black people who were walking by. But when brought before the judge, all adult white witnesses testified that the kids were out of town when the incident occurred. In the same month over in Reynoldstown, another house was attempted to be bombed. Alma Hicks and her daughter Dorothy, both black women, had moved into a house at 960 Manigault bought from a white man. 
Now, black people were already living in numbers 941, 945, 949, and 951, Manigault, but that was across Flat Shoals, where it was okay to live while black. 960 was across the street and way too close for comfort to the white side of the street, and it was called locally, quote-unquote, forbidden territory. In August, she was lucky enough to smell the dynamite odor and call the police before it was detonated. They found three sticks placed in the front yard. On October 7th, a second attempt was made to dynamite the home, and once again, she was able to find the sticks before explosion. In a strange turn of events, and I say strange because almost no one was ever arrested or charged for these crimes, the police did arrest three white youths, J.H. Hunton, 22, of Simsville, Alfred Cochran, 16, of Smyrna, and Dorsey Elliott, who was 16 and lived on Jones Avenue. All three were released on $200 bonds, and the bonds for both Cochran and Elliot were posted by 5th Ward Alderman J.E. Bowden. In November, and guys, we're still in 1932 over here, over on Angier Avenue in today's old 4th Ward, we have another bombing. At this point, Atlanta City Council was attempting to do something to stop these incidents, so their idea is to grant moving permits. So they pass an ordinance that authorizes a city clerk to withhold a moving permit to anyone who differs from the race of the majority of residents on a specific street. Reverend B.V. Thornton of Big Bethel AME Church was vocally against this restriction, and within hours after speaking about it, his house at 395 Angier Avenue was bombed with dynamite. Glass shattered everywhere, and one of the foundation pillars was blown out. The fourth ward was a tense, violent hotspot even a decade later. In 1942, Mayor William Hartfield pledges cooperation to, quote, stem the tide of Negro encroachment, end quote, near Argonne and North Avenues. And he urged white homeowners not to convert their homes to black ownership and to hold out as long as they could. The post-World War II period across America is where we see the heightened racialized violence. You have GIs returning from years spent in some European countries that did not have Jim Crow, and then they come home after putting their lives on the line for their country, and they want equal citizenship that was promised to them, you know, way back in 1865. And there was still a major housing crisis that I've talked about many times in Atlanta, and there's just not enough stock to supply demand. Black families are legally purchasing homes in historically white neighborhoods, and stuff was about to hit the fan. By October of 1956, the Sells Avenue and Ashby Street intersection was the center of the controversy. I've read about Ashby Street, which again today is Joseph E. Lowry, and I've been guilty about talking about it very simply and very briefly, its racial dividing line. But once I learned all of these stories, I will never flippantly talk about it that way again. C.R. Walker, a black Atlanta life insurance agent, was going to see a customer when he turned his car around at that intersection. A white man was walking by, shined his flashlight in the car, and once he saw that a black man was driving, he took out his gun and started shooting at him. Miraculously, Walker is not hit, but the rear of his car is riddled with bullet holes. The following month, a house at 939 Sells Avenue was on fire, and when firefighters arrived, they found a quarter jug of gasoline in the yard. The home had been purchased by Dorothy Scruggs, a black woman, just last year. In February of 1947, the residence of Annie Pearl Brown at 908 West End Avenue was forcibly rocked by a mysterious bomb explosion just after midnight. Earlier that night, a neighbor had seen a black Buick stop at the intersection of Ashby and West End Avenue and throw a rock at the streetlight to break it and create the cover of darkness. The next month, the home of Reverend A.C. Epps on Ashby Street was bombed while the family sat and listened to the radio. Epps was a student at Gammon Theological Seminary, 
And two weeks prior to this night, a group of 10 white men had visited his home while he was away, threatening his wife and told her that she had to move in seven days. Now, she told her husband that there was a police parked on the street because the city was trying to do something. So the city would station police officers in these neighborhoods for quote-unquote protection. But she said that this group of men just walked over to the police car and laughed and joked with the officer after threatening her. They told her that they had already been successful preventing a family from moving into 348 Ashby, and this was already the second explosion the neighborhood had seen in the last week. Five large windows were broken out, as well as a transom window, and the foundation was shook. A bit of fuse and a dynamite cap were found strewn nearby. In June of 47, two white men were seen planting a bomb between 333 and 339 Ashby Street, which blew out over 20 windows between two homes. We know this because two local dogs saw them and barked, alerting a neighbor to look out their window and see the men plant the bomb and then run back into a yard. Miss Lucille Harris was living in 333 with her sister Willie, and 339 was home to a woman simply described as a young, expectant mother. Police officers looked for the men but couldn't find them, but once they left, the two came out of the yard and began firing shots just into the air. Just a week later, around the 1st of July of 47, a house owned by Vinicius Williams was bombed and the damage described as enormous. This was the fifth and sixth explosions in the Cells Ashby area, and so far, no police investigations were done. Nish Williams was a famous black baseball player, starting his career at Morehouse and debuting in the Negro Leagues in 1928 with the Nashville Elite Giants. He joined the Atlanta Black Crackers as player manager in 1938. And he purchased 361 Ashby Street just 18 months before the bombing and told police that he'd received numerous threats from the KKK and the Colombians. Now, quick side note, I have done an episode about the KKK and I have done an episode about the Colombians. So most people know about the Klan. If you do not know about the Colombians, I can't remember the episode number, but definitely go back and listen to that. Around this time is when we start to see imaginary boundary lines established, supported by city leaders. In 1948, Watson Carey, new president of the White Citizens Committee, developed a section bounded by Ponce, the Beltline, um, which was then the railway, Highland Avenue, and Parkway as being strictly for white people. In 1949, the West End Cooperative Corporation, led by Joe Wallace as president, launched a $20,000 bond selling program to, quote, cope with housing problems, end quote. And by COPE, the idea was to raise money to buy back the homes that had been purchased by Black families, and therefore, quote-unquote, restoring the neighborhood. In 1949, there was a mass meeting of white Mosley Park residents to raise funds to also buy back their properties there. And these are just a fraction of the small neighborhood groups that formed. There was um, definitely a group in Oakland City that I read about, and this was kind of this attempt before white flight. So before moving... They banded together, and because these homes were legally sold to black families, their only legal method was to raise money to buy them back. But none of these groups, boundaries, or plans stopped the violence. In March of 1949, an unoccupied house at 369 Ashby was bombed, injuring only a neighboring white resident. It ripped the plaster from the walls and the ceilings, demolished the floors, ripped out the window frames, and blew the doors off their hinges. Rosa Torrance had just purchased it a year before, and she rented it to white tenants. So the white tenants had just moved out. She goes to check on her property, where she's approached by two men from the West End Cooperative Corporation, and one of them was the president, Joe Wallace. They told her she couldn't live there. Just days before the bomb was detonated, she also received a warning call. And so she calls the police, and the police send 
a cop to sit on her block. And a cop was supposedly sitting on the block during this bombing. They say that it must have been detonated between watches. In February of 1951, the garage in the rear of a home at 518 East Avenue was on fire, soaked in kerosene. Two Atlanta police officers on duty were able to extinguish the flames with a hose. The next month, a vacant home at 524 East Avenue was bombed. So both of these are attributed to the Oakland City Klan. The Imperial Wizard at the time was Sam Roper, and he asked Klan member W.M. Bruce to come with him to hit up the East Avenue home. Now, George uh, Sly, S-L-I-G-H, however you say that, he was the acting exalted cyclops of the Oakland City Clavern 297, which had 300 members, by the way. When he finds out about this proposed bombing, he actually calls either the police or some members to stop it from happening. And he ends up stepping down as the KKK's leader because of this event, and he had 50 other members following him. It's almost bizarre to hear a Klan leader talk like this, but his whole defense is like, he's a Methodist, he's never has or wanted to violate the law, he's a family man, and he tells police he's willing to testify in front of the Fulton County Grand Jury against these other men. By January of 1952, there were indictments out on Chuck Klein, secretary to the Imperial Wizard, and James Knight, who was a garage mechanic whose house was used to make the dynamite. Now, this was the first time that Klan members had been charged with anything in a decade. In 1951, there was a string of bombings on 4th Street. Today, there is a 4th Street in Cary Park, but this was a 4th Street that no longer exists, just north of the Georgia Tech campus. Intersecting Tumlin Street was a black residential section, but 4th was mixed and the bombings intended to keep it as white as possible. The third bombing of the week was the home of Alonzo Johnson and his wife and three kids. He had worked for the sales firm of Frank W. Collins for many years. And so apparently Collins did some research. He found out where he could legally buy a house for his black employee. And he even went as far as to poll the neighbors about their thoughts about having a black neighbor. He said that he, quote unquote, got clearance. And this is a larger conversation about the fact that this violence was not always from the direct neighbors, but neighbors from other parts of the city. So people from Oakland City or people from Bankhead were coming to Center Hill or they were coming to this area north of Georgia Tech um, to, to do this violence as well. And of course, there was organized groups like the KKK and the Colombians as well. In the spring of 1953, a white family at 572 Cairo Street, which is today the Bankhead area, just to the west of Joseph E. Lowry, sold their home to a black real estate company. And that house was then burned twice in a 48-hour period. After extensive repairs, it was dynamited at the end of April, and the back porch destroyed. On the parallel Simmons Street, three houses were burned in quick succession, and each time firefighters found a partially filled gas container on site. They also would get false alarm fire calls that would pull them away from the area where these houses would then be set on fire once they were far away. By the fall of 53, three more homes on Cairo Street were set on fire or bombed. While the city really took the Cairo Street incident seriously, they put nightly police protection, but they couldn't find the culprit until they arrested a white 22-year-old auto mechanic named Merlin Fred Burt and three accomplices. Burt lived at 536 Cairo, and when police went to his house, they found a bomb inside, which was five sticks of dynamite taped around a metal bar. Something like that could have taken out an entire house and killed all the people inside. 
After Bert's arrest, there was one season of peace before the bombings began again in February of 1954. U.S. Airman Joseph Waller and his wife Eula were living at 647 Simmons Street, which was dynamited twice. The second time, six people inside narrowly escaped with their lives. In September of 1954, a vacant one-story house on Hightower Road was bombed. A black family had just signed a contract to purchase it, and the explosion shattered the bed. It drove a bedpost into the ceiling. The walls crumbled, the windows ripped out, and the foundation badly damaged. It also broke windows in houses all around it. In January of 1956, in Birmingham, Alabama, was the bombing of Dr. King's home. And so this was national news. But a lot of people don't know that in the next month, we had a succession of bombings on Baker Road here in Atlanta. The first was 2540 Baker Road, recently bought by Jewel Stewart Jr. for $8,000. He had just moved his stuff in when he heard an explosion Saturday night. And by the time police arrived, 200 white people were gathered in front of the house, just milling around in the street. By Saturday, this crowd had grown to five or 600 people. The patrolman came to check. He realizes there is a hole in the ground caused from a firecracker, but it's not actually on Stewart's property. And Stewart is like, I am out of here. He had a wife and a young child. And from what I read, the, the wife was just a nervous wreck. She would not live in that house. The next explosion was Wednesday at 2431 Baker Road. Walter Hamby, a white man, had just sold it to Mrs. Alfred Stevens, a black woman. The blast demolished the steps at the back wall of the house. Two police cars came to investigate, and while they were looking at the house, someone came by and broke their car window and let the air out of their tires. The third bombing was in March at 508 Woods Drive. Jeanette Howard and her two kids and mother had just moved in two days prior and all survived the blast. It blew out the foundation It crushed the family's piano, destroyed the gas lines, and cracked the walls. All of these Baker Road area bombings were traced back to one organizer, a woman simply known as Mrs. Holmes, who was described as a white, red-haired taxi driver who lived on Old No. The Daily World obtained her phone number and provided it to police, but as far as I can tell in the research, there was no prosecutory measures taken. Old No Drive in Center Hill continued to be a hotspot for violence. In April of 56, a bomb was thrown towards the house of Gertrude Anderson, but it rolled down the hill and blew up the road pavement and destroyed a neighboring white home instead. After the bombing, a crowd of 100 white people gathered and started yelling at a black man who was also there surveying the damage. But they chased him to his car, a block and a half away, stoned his car, and broke all the windows. Now, a white man named Alan Oglesby later shows up to Grady Hospital with cuts all up in his arm. They realized, you know, he was connected to this incident, and they actually charged him with intent to commit violent injury. In July of 1956 on Rankin Street in the Fourth Ward, Carl and Sally Haynes, a black couple, rented a house from Rooker Real Estate Company for $42.50, which I love. They had just moved in when the house was dynamited at 4.15 in the morning. Both of them ran several blocks to his brother's house, which was on Parkway, and they expressed to reporters that no one had told them it was a white street. So here's where I have to start wrapping up the bombings, which seems ridiculous to say out loud. There were so many of these stories, I could be here for another 20 minutes. I found articles all the way through the end of 1960. Not that this violence or the bombings stopped on that date. I think there was a slowdown in the number of cases, But this is also when we start to see actual white flight. Essentially, once the bombings and intimidations didn't work, 
white families left these neighborhoods in a mass exodus. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's residential bombings of black homes from the 30s through 1960. I know you're wondering, are any of these houses still around? And the sad answer is, not many. There are two on Baker. Um, the house on Manigault is still there. There's one on Joseph E. Lowry. And there's a larger story hiding in plain sight, which I haven't quite gotten to yet. It's the majority of these areas, they're not even residential anymore. So I assume this might have happened during urban renewal. But when I went back to look at each of these addresses, sometimes I'm looking at an industrial site or a commercial block um, or a parking lot. And so another episode for another day. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review in your favorite podcast app. Hope everyone has a great weekend. And I'll talk to you next week.